just for the sake of warming up our vocals and things yes. try try and do Susie eats sashimi from the sushi samba at the shard Susie eats sushi from the what was the rest no Susie eats sashimi oh god sushi samba at the shard Susie eats sashimi at the sushi shamba at the shard sushi shamba sushi shamba sushi that's what it is it's really hard shoot how do you how do you say sushi now <laughs> sushi so Susie, Susie eats sashimi from the sushi samba at the shard. Susie eats sashimba at the <laughs> shard. Why are we here today? Well, um, firstly, I'll say welcome to Nothing Much to Talk About. That is the name of this show. And we are here to talk about all the Spider-Man. All because of them? All of them. Well, yeah, I mean, well, okay, well, being... That's a being very broad statement. We're going to talk about the Japanese one. We're going to oh, talk about... Ne- Neil Patrick Harris. Yes, uh, oh my God, the, the CGI one, yeah. Um, and also in Shattered Dimensions, the, the video spectacular, game. The Spectacular Spider-Man. We've already talked about Spider-Man on Broadway, and we accept that that's the best one, so yes, we don't true. have any... There's nothing left to say on that. Yuri Lowenthal, um, playing him word. in the PS4 game. There's so many different Spider-Men out there in the there world. There are a lot of different Spider-Men. We are only talking about the... Big screen, theatrically released in the 21st century versions of Spider-Man. There weren't any others. I'm just... I don't think there are any others. The, just, the 1970s film, so... Exactly, there you go. So, so that's we've got 21st said, century. 21st century. Uh, but was it released in cinemas, or was that a TV movie? I have no idea. Oh, good. But in my head, it was a cinema film. We're good at research. Just because it was so good that it definitely deserved a cinema release. Ah, right. Well, you've seen it. Oh, I've got it on video. Oh, I haven't, so... Um, well, that's a watch now. party. Wait, is this, the, is this a live-action one as well? It might be a TV movie, thinking about it. I, oh, damn it. Um, <laughs> thinking back on it, I'm pretty sure it's a TV movie. As in, I, it's an hour long. That, the, an, the, the answers to that question sounded more obvious than I meant. I meant was it a spin-off of the TV show. We didn't just spend a minute being like, <laughs> was this a movie or not? And then I went, or oh, was that part of the TV show? Spider-Man 1977 film, an hour and 32 minutes, action fantasy. Uh... <laughs> what? It doesn't exist. No, Spider-Man is a 1977 American made-for-television oh. superhero film that aired on CBS and had a theatrical re- had a theatrical release outside oh, of the did. US. You did it. You did it outside which, of the and that's theatrical the, release. And outside of the US, outside which is of where the, we are. Outside of the US, that's the one. Yes, we are outside. It was directed by E.W. Swackhammer. <laughs> That guy would. They made, I have two sequels. They made a TV Thor movie in the. 80s, it's a crime that this man didn't direct that as well. We don't know that for sure. Here comes the swag hammer. Oh, I, I don't know which one I have now because that I don't oh, recognize there's, that. If there's multiple ones. Well, there's Spider-Man Strikes Back and then Spider-Man The Dragon's Challenge. So I'm guessing these are all spin-offs of the 70s TV series. I can only assume. Okay, we are getting off track. The point is we're looking at the big budget modern incarnations of Spider-Man on the big screen. Namely, the three live-action, real boy actors who have played him. Tobey Maguire, Andrew Garfield, and Tom Holland. For, you know, just no reason. We don't know. Maybe, they t- maybe they're in the news now for some reason. Yeah, maybe I, I saw they were trending on Twitter, so people don't just be yes, watching exactly. all the films people are recently. In, people are just enjoying going back to see Spider-Man. Do we want to jump straight in, then? We're talking about... The first outing, or do we? Do we have? Do you have any introduction planned for this? Uh, not a specific introduction. Okay. Should we talk just briefly okay. about our own 
personal feelings towards Spider-Man as a character? He's a good character. Okay. I like oh. him. That's that's basically it. I feel like that might come through when I talk about him in the film. Yeah, this is my thing though, just as a brief introduction of the thing of um as a as a child, ah. you know, how much did Spider-Man as a character have an impact on you? Well, um not to repeat myself, but the first Spider-Man film, 2002, 2001, 2002, I don't remember the year. 2002. Okay. That's my earliest memory of watching a film in cinemas. So that's very significant in itself. And it's probably, I would say of all the Marvel characters, the one that has the most still deeply profound impact without even knowing it consciously, I think. I think sometimes I sort of make the mistake of thinking that Spider-Man is just another hero and then something profound will happen in a film or a show or a comic that features him and it just hits me in a deep place that no other hero really does, I think. I I, I definitely get that. I think there is a a complete unique aspect to just Peter Parker's story and Spider-Man in general as a hero that hits home for like such a broad variety of people that it's like of course he became like one of the most popular and amazing characters haha I see what you did there but um, there's just something about seeing Peter Parker's struggle or Peter Parker's life and the way he struggles between those two identities of Spider-Man and Peter Parker that is so much more human than it seems with like any other character like there are characters who have been and come uh, since Peter Parker and Spider-Man that have you know done it better in some ways worse in other ways but none of them have ever stuck the landing stuck the ground for the extent of time that's the the way Spider-Man has it very much set the blueprint of what we'd like to see out of modern superheroes I think with Stanley and Steve Ditko's work in the 60s it it very much set a template of we relate to these heroes on a human level they're not tales of escapism anymore they are relatable because they have human problems and human issues yeah, I was reading um, a thing uh, the other day that was talking about it, someone comparing the heroes of Marvel versus the heroes of DC and basically saying that, you know, the heroes in Marvel are humans. Yeah. Like, we are represented through them in a human capacity. They are changed and altered humans. Mm-hmm. But DC heroes are often reviewed as gods. Yeah. Like, those are, yeah. they're above humanity. And yeah. Like, as much as Batman is a human... He's not really a human at this point. Like, he's basically no, just above that. He's, and I, I think that comes across in the way he's presented cinematically, which is very often as a symbol more than a person. Yes, exactly. Which like, is still good in its own yeah, it Like, even when Bruce Wayne as Batman mm. goes away, the yeah. symbol of Batman stays around. Yes. Know, whenever he dies in these medias, like, he, it's about the symbol he stands for. He's, like, the fear in, the, in Criminals. Mm-hmm. Whereas, like... Spider-Man dies, they bring in another Spider-Man because it's the representation of Spider-Man. It's not like... Yes. And whereas in the Raimi films, it's the representation of New York and they do kind of bring it more together. That's that's the other thing, I think. um, We'll probably get more into this later, but I can't think of any hero who is so tied to the geography of their place. I couldn't think of a better word. The place they're at than Spider-Man is with New York. It's literally like you, you... 
it, they even have a joke in Homecoming how his powers are literally not suited to anywhere else other than a place, a tightly populated area with skyscrapers everywhere. Yeah, because what are you going to do? Web swing around mm. like any other city, any city yeah. in the UK, you'd be doing. No, oh, you don't. There's you one can swing around a bit of London. There's that's one it. tower in Swansea that's like over ten stories high. That's it. Yeah, you're doomed otherwise. So the first Spider-Man movie, the 2002 yes. Sam Raimi film. Yes. With music by... Oh, I forgot. Danny Elfman. Yes. Yes, it is. Yeah. I'm going back because you didn't... I didn't, didn't remember the other day, but I somehow remembered all the other ones, yeah. even though I don't like their scores as much. Well... Not that I think they're bad, right? Well, yeah. but, but, you know. It's very weird to look at the Raimi films through the context of modern superhero films because so much of it is laid in the groundwork here. So much of what they pioneered in form of storytelling and bringing superheroes to the screen is the way we have just accepted superheroes on the big screen now. The way that um, the origin story is introduced to us and is, some, is something that you haven't seen like up to that point in that way, if that makes sense. Like It's the way we are introduced to Peter Parker and his story mm. is not at all the way that you'd expect to be introduced to a hero. Yeah, and, and I think it's it's maybe the purest form, I think, of the sort of superhero mythos on... Or one of the purest, I should say. It, it harkens back to um, sort of Tim Burton's Batman and Richard Donner's Superman, where it is... It maybe doesn't get all the nuance of the character in this in the same sort of modern framework we understand it as, but it does give a very strong cinematic impression and sort of introduces it to wider audiences. Like I was thinking that because, like you just said with introducing him, typically, even in comics, Peter Parker isn't that much of an outcast. Like he's still, as much as Tobey Maguire is in this, like he still has friends, he's still, you know, he's he's part of the high school. He's bullied and he's a nerd, but it's not like he is hated by everyone, almost as if yeah. he's done some horrible thing. As if he's committed a war crime yeah. that we don't seem to know about yeah. in the film. Like, even like a bus driver yeah. seems to hate him. He's like, the, this kid. The bus driver laughs at his misfortune constantly. Yeah. The other nerds don't want to sit with him. Yeah, what like, what could you have possibly done? <laughs> like, Because this is before that he is, you know, before he's Spider-Man, so before mm. he's like an outcast from school for yes. just not being yeah. there. He's like he goes to school. He's a smart kid. Mm. Like, what has he done? <laughs> that, like, whose baby did he kill yeah. at like at a birthday party by dropping a fridge on it? Like, just to really get on un under everyone's skin. But he did manage to snuggle up to the one rich kid in the school, and that's all he needs, I guess. Yeah. Um, but yeah, but that's what I mean. It, it's a again, it doesn't have the you know if you're a more seasoned comic reader of Spider Man at the time. This is like a simplification of Peter's dynamic in the school, but it's still one that's very strong from a storytelling standpoint because you're like, I get who this kid is. Yeah. He's 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 you, just you the, cannot, he's the one that no one will look at twice. Yeah, you cannot uh, express that Peter Parker is a loser in that film mm. like faster or more efficiently <laughs> than the way that it is done in that film. Mm. Like there is no there is no character who is been shat on so quickly just it but in in such a grounded way as yeah well. like, it's not like oh my god this is like ridiculous to the level of, no no he doesn't oh my have. god the universe literally cursed this man 
but it's like it's comedically b-movie level of we get it it's campy this kid is a complete outcast yeah there's a simplicity to the storytelling of it but also a real pureness to how they visually represent spider-man i think because you have this attitude where it's almost as if you can tell they wanted every frame of it to look like a comic panel for better or worse because that's sometimes there's a bit of awkwardness in how exactly they are going to translate the comics to this visual language and even and that's what i mean with sort of you can almost see them learning to walk in it in a way where they are trying to beat for beat recreate the images of a comic book without fully knowing how to integrate it into the language of film yeah it very much comes to mind the idea of watchmen where yes. it's like yeah yeah we're trying to recreate this very specific image, but it doesn't matter how we get there. Yes. Like, as long as we get this image so that someone can take a screenshot of it and yeah, be like, look, definitely. it looks like mm. the thing, then it's cool. Yeah, but I, I would say the difference is here that there's a visual tone that matches the sort of simplicity of the story with Raimi's film. Because, you again, you have these very broadly drawn characters as well. You know, Peter isn't what I'd call... He has com- depth, but I wouldn't say he's necessarily complex in his motives in this one. And again, this is this all of this is coming with a grain of salt because it's very. This is the first time people, general audiences, see Spider-Man on the big screen. This is again that that's why I sort of draw the comparison to Donna's Superman or Burton's Batman. It is not. We're not aiming for the complexion of these characters here, as we see them in later versions. We are getting the broad strokes that work very well in introducing everyone to them. Yeah, we get all of Peter's motive like, within like three scenes. We get, he gets the powers, yeah. he needs money, he gets... You're about to describe off. more than three scenes. But, like, you know I mean, like he, if you, you could boil it down to like three mm. sentences, basically, like yeah. he gets powers, he gets pissed off because someone wrong does wrong to him, mm. he doesn't act, he loses. Yeah. And then that that's like the, the crux of his the hero journey mm. and like at that point everything that he learns post that is like you know it's it's him becoming more like spider-man but in that moment of him losing uncle ben and that's like that's his biggest loss at that point and i think throughout the entire like raimi trilogy that's like the worst that it ever really gets for him like there you know there are sad bits but he doesn't technically lose no and it's it, it sort of stands as this uh, nexus point almost where it becomes a... And, I, and again, that's how it is in the comics. It's a very clear-cut way of giving this kid motivation because it is literally a case of um, he sort of sees the entire world through his own... Um, sort of reflected through his own perception of it for a moment because the random act of violence that could have happened to anyone happened to him and it gives him this moment of why he needs to use his powers to help everyone he can so no one else has to feel the way he does yeah and that's again that's such a great way of getting that broad spider-man motivation into this so what we're saying about sort of it looking like a comic book in every frame the action can sometimes feel a little stilted again it's this it's this really strange early phenomenon of sort of not fully knowing how to integrate people's powers into action scenes. And, and also not so much... It's still the birth of 
you modern CGI, yes, as well. Yes, so. integrating them into it. There's a lot of uh, rubbery Tobey Maguire in this. Not not a lot, I should say. Just and it, a it couple does look of, good, to be fair. For, like, for yeah. 2002, it looks really good. Yes, it, it's more in the sort of... It's not even the CGI itself. It's in the sort of assembly of it. Because it's not so much the CGI models, but the way that they cut very sort of jarringly back to a fully real human. Yeah. And it doesn't quite... The compositing isn't quite there to sort of match the two. It will be very soon, but it isn't right now. And But you can feel um, sort of Raimi's handling of the action get better, I think, as the film goes along. Because like, I think it's crystallised by the fact that first interaction with Green Goblin, sort of a bit awkward, a bit clunky, a bit sort of too campy in a way for its own good, where the... I mean, it's fun, but the action beats aren't hitting properly just because, you know, it's like they just sort of stand there and elbow each other for a bit. Yeah, I mean, I think the best way you can summarise the the difference in the way is the, the first fight with the, the balloons, basically. You know, the balloon yes, fight with yeah. the bouncing along the balloons, mm. glider fight, very much CGI heavy yeah. compared to the final fight yes, of the film. which is which astonishing. Is, just brutal and yeah. clearly all done practically to I mean, to the to most point. Yeah. And like done in a set where they just destroyed it and like beaten to a pulp. There's mm. blood, there's wounds, the suits all get ripped and it's like, it, yeah. it, that's like the furthest Raimi goes yeah. into making a horror film. <laughs> a horror film. Yeah. Except for it, the sequence in yes, too. But, but it, it's, yeah, because especially even the way he frames Goblin in that because there's a, like something that scared me the most as a child and sort of now when I watch it as well, there's a desperation to Spider-Man in that that you don't see, I think, in any other film, where it is literally... But at a certain point, I love the little things, actions in the fight where he's not even trying to fight him anymore. It's almost like he's running away, like he's webbing up the wall to try and just stop him and trying to swing away, and it's just this monster that keeps moving forward. Yeah. And, yeah, there's a... there's. I don't want to lean too much on the word brutal because it will probably be used a lot to describe that fight, but it's just, there's just such anguish in it. And yeah. it just never, and it's so unrelenting when the goblin is attacking him. In other words, he gets the shit kicked out of him. Yeah, absolutely. And I think, I mean, because like, his mask rips the same way mm. in everything. Yeah. <laughs> but like, it's, it's always there to just like, to be ruined mm. so that we get Tom Maguire yes. at, at, like at the end of the film yeah. but like in the first one like it's fringe hanging out bloody lit yeah like. there's a there's a sense of messiness to it that even when they rip the mask in later films you don't have the same sort of visceral impact of it and I think it's the way that we see it happen as well because you know the the way that he smashes through the window smashes through the brick wall tries to swing smashes through a plane of glass gets hit by a bomb and it's, there's a, like, you see all of the sequencing up close. It's not just random explosion hits the hero. Oh, no, his suit is a little ripped. Yeah. Like, you see each piece of that mask fall away and every punch just feels, ugh. And I think even Ow. in the rest of the Raymond trilogy and probably most of the other films, it's the only time where I've, like, ever felt that there was direct threat of, of death, but in, like, a like a, a violent way if that makes yeah. sense like when Doc Ock has him it's like got him by the throat mm. and like he's always throwing things at him or like the, he, like there's that one bit where he might crush his head but you never really get that implication that he's gonna do it 
and Venom might stab him with that sharp pole. Yeah. And then, but like when Goblin has like that mm. spear that he basically is going to just like impale him with, that's like that direct threat. Yeah. He's holding it back. Like, like that's so much scarier than yeah. most other villains. I wonder if part of it is because of Willem Dafoe's just mania with it as well. Yeah. There's a real, like, he has such an incredible mix of campy theatricality, but genuine, terrifying menace in that film. And there's, like, it's, it makes me so mad that they gave him this weird biker helmet mask. And only in, I get why they had to do that, because it's sort of a big plot point that Peter doesn't know that Norman is the goblin. But, like, Willem Dafoe's face is so expressive, and he just does such a great job with it. And yeah. when he isn't under that mask, and it's, you sort of lose that when he's, but when he's covered. But even then, his voice is just intimidating in itself, I yeah. think. And I think, like, as a kid, that, that mask scared me. Yeah. And I think that's what it did. As much as, like, Willem Dafoe's face is scary, but, like... The mask is an iconic visual that like stayed with me as a kid yeah. in the way that I think Willem Dafoe's face wouldn't have. Mm. Well, but even speak in, for yourself. Yeah, but even in the scenes where he's not in costume, you can tell when he's mm. the goblin when, when he's not like when he like, switches it off. Yeah, like it's incredible. Like mm. it's an incredible performance, and I, yeah. I, I hope we see it again someday. Yeah. <laughs> it it goes back to that thing of being the characters are broadly drawn where. I, again, I wouldn't say Goblin is like, or Norman is a complex character, but he is so cleanly drawn where it's, he, it, it almost feels a bit like Heath Ledger's Joker, where again, it's not a character you really know that much about in terms of motive or backstory, but it is one that represents the pure sort of adversary to the hero. Yeah. It's not, if you, if you sort of see Raimi's, like, or Tobey Maguire's Spy, Spider-Man slash Peter Parker as the purest embodiment of that teenager just trying to be a hero, this is the sociopathic monster who just will not stop at anything. I mean, his motive isn't, unlike any other villain, he doesn't have any secondary plan. His motive is purely to destroy Spider-Man. That's yeah. all that drives him through, that once he's killed the Oscorp executives, in the third act of the film, he is literally, my mission is to ruin this child's life. It's true, because yeah, he goes straight after Aunt May, mm. um, and he finds Mary Jane, yes, tries to kill yeah. those kids. Yeah, which again is a very comic book scenario, and the dialogue is sort of, it's very comic booky. It doesn't quite translate into film in a more natural way that we'd associate with it now. Where I mean, it's almost like he's waxing uh, sort of philosophically about the nature of heroism. He's like, we, well, you never know when some maniac will come along. And, and it's like, I believe Willem Dafoe would say all those things because he sells them. And yeah. it's, if, it was a, if it was a less theatrical film, it would feel very out of place. But here it feels sort of suitable. Yeah, I think if, yeah, as you said, like if it was in another, if it was in like a normal style MCU movie now, mm. it wouldn't fit because it wouldn't have that B movie campy kind of vibe no. that it could get away with it. But I think just the fact that the way Willem Dafoe delivers it, he gets mm. away with it and it, yeah, like, the campiness just carries and and in that final sequence is one of the best shots of uh, all the Spider-Man stuff is the um, is it the eyes of course it's the eyes yes, like yeah. the eyes looks yeah. Yeah, it's amazing it's but so it, cool. and again that's a very um, immediately impactful visual 
more than just it, it like it's right there it's in it's in his eyes it's reflected in yeah and it's not you know nothing close to what you'd regard as realistic but still just so expressionistic in what it's saying because it's like the dilemma is right there it's great visual storytelling and it's the kind of thing you would see in a comic book yeah makes it, it's just fantastic it's, it's yeah great shot. It's, great it's shot. Great. yeah um good movie yeah, yeah. I, I thoroughly enjoy that movie yeah Still to this day as well. It's yeah. not, it doesn't feel, you know, again, I, I keep going back to the Burton's Batman and Donna Superman because it, it, it does feel like it's been canonized in that same league where we've seen other versions of this character, but there really is something uniquely iconic. And dare I say better versions of that character as well, but there is something uniquely iconic to the first time you see that presented in on the big screen. Yeah, absolutely. And that's why it ended up getting a sequel. Yes, because in 2004. Well, you you killed my segue because I was going to say, <laughs> much like Burton's Batman and Donna's Superman, it leaves the door open for better sequels that are more thematically complex and stand up perfectly in contemporary superhero worlds. Because I would say, with all three of those, the first films are still enjoyable but sort of products of their time the sequels to all of those 100% work alongside any contemporary superhero yeah. film Superman 2 Batman Superman and Robin two. the Donner cut of Superman 2 is <laughs> yes and the Batman Returns great uh, yeah I thought you Batman and Robin no why would I mean Batman and Robin or Batman Forever no the the comparison I want to make with this is there's this great um, thing where Bill Hader is talking about Evil Dead and he's sort of saying that what's great about that movie on a sort of metatextual level is that what you're watching with Evil Dead isn't a film. What you're watching is Sam Raimi and Bruce Campbell slowly learning how to make a film over the course of its runtime and they get better at it every day and then that and then it's still a good film on its own but then by the time they come back for the sequel they essentially just perfectly refine the film they made the first time round. I think well, Spider-Man 1 is a similar thing where you are watching Sam Raimi learn how to make a blockbuster and then by the time Spider-Man 2 comes around he's perfected it. Yeah, he's figured it out. He's, he's like all of the clunky parts of Spider-Man 1 are just wiped out in this. That, and that, remember, bear in mind that's still a very good film but this is just spectacular amazing even or spectacular that, also that, that still would works. also work superior oh it also yes. works and Ultimate, because it's Dark Ark as well yeah. and I Spider-Man am, I am clever <laughs> uh, a lot of people call it you know, the, the quintessential superhero film mm. that existed before the MCU like you know it was mm the best superhero film before The Dark Knight came out, in my opinion, since the... after The Dark Knight came out as well. It's still... I think it's very much... I don't I don't want to give a definitive. It's better than that, even, because they're both great films, but I think it could de- easily stand alongside The Dark Knight. They both strike different tones of what yes, superhero films are. But that's... And that's what I want to talk about with Spider-Man 2 as well. The tonal range of it is something that blows me away every time I watch it, because it goes from goofy sincere comedy to straight up horror in times and it there's there's these real sort of moments of subtle human melodrama that feel incredible there's these astonishing action beats that are both theatrical and 
spectacular and provide like great just broad entertainment but then they're also viscerally thrilling it's it's like this tightrope walk at all times and it's just constantly functioning at the perfect level yeah i i mean it, it shows that you can have like you know the train fight in that film in the same film as the scene where he's in an elevator and goes like it rides up on the crop yeah. a little bit <laughs> And yeah. they're both, um, like, just great scenes because, like, they both fit in that tone of that movie. They both fit in the overarching just story. Like, they, they make sense to be there. And, like, and because we watched the um, the director's cut, yes, the extended yeah. cut, whatever, recently. Mm-hmm. And, there, I mean, there, I don't think there was a single scene in that where I was like, I'm glad they cut this. This feels ex- added in. No, ex- it, except for the yeah. Jameson wearing the Spider-Man suit. Excuse me, so that is the best scene. Which I'm glad exists, <laughs> but I don't think it belongs in the film. Oh, I just you just remind me. I didn't mention this should have come under the first film. I didn't mention J.K. Simmons, and that, that which is, is so funny because before we did this, I I took started taking notes because I said I don't want to get to it and think, oh no, I left out J.K. Simmons, which and now I've done I've done exactly that. But I want to because like you can look at some. I mean. I'll say I'll, he can belong here because I dare I say he's even better here than he was the first time around. Yes. Because, uh, you know, there's comic book castings like that the sort of nail the character in a, in a long-form scope that, you know, you got Chris Evans as Captain America or Hugh Jackman as Wolverine or, I don't know, more recently like Margot Robbie as Harley Quinn. But I think in terms of a hundred, like getting the perfect crystallization snapshot of what that character is, J.K. Simmons as J. Jonah Jameson is the best casting in any film ever. Yeah, I mean, I think it stands to reason because there has never been another no. person who's played a live-action J. Jonah Jameson, to my knowledge. No, they didn't. They didn't want Since it. that, like... No. We've had, like, the, in Amazing Spider-Man, they just simply did not try. No. They, they were like, we can't do that. Yeah. Um, and, like, there's been vocal performances, like, VAs, and, but they're all channeling J.K. Simmons. At they point, really like. do. It feel, and he revived it twice in The Simpsons. Yeah. So, you know, I mean, what else can you ask for? But back to the crux of our Spider-Man 2 talk. Every, like, sort of seam within the first Spider-Man just feels like it's polished off here. I confuse metaphors a bit there, but it doesn't matter. Good old, good way to <laughs> sew up those yeah, when you're sewing up yeah. and then you start polishing your yeah. dress. Yeah, oh, you really took the shine out of that cloth. <laughs> the CGI is so much better integrated. It's, it's not just because technology has come forward. Again, I think it's... Sam Raimi sort of really worked out how to move the camera while incorporating effects into it much better this time and cut between the two and composite one on the other. I think the animation is what um, makes it so much better as well as that like it seems like they they went into Spider-Man 2 knowing a lot more about how it works so they knew how to prep for it and how to animate a lot better Um, and and also the technology had improved quite a bit in the two years between because like there's a lot of stuff where like there are full 3D CG models of um, Alfred Molina and stuff yes. like that. And like, that, they, they manage. Like, yeah. yeah. There's so many stuff where it's like, oh, this actually works. Like, mm. as there's a couple of bits where you're like, well, I guess I can kind of see. But like, you don't get taken out of the film at all because it all fits. Yeah, that's the point. It, it's not so much that every single thing in this looks completely realistic because it doesn't at all times. But the way that the film is sort of communicating those effects ends up having a much clearer conciseness to it. Because you're not, you don't really see the sharp juxtaposition like in the first one when he's jumping across the roof and then it's real Tobey Maguire, then it's robbery Tobey Maguire. 
you just get a much more distorted mix of the two, I think. But outside of effects, what always strikes me the most about Spider-Man 2 is just how achingly human it is. What's, like, it, um, uh, what, what's the statistics on it, but he's only Spider-Man oh, for yeah. about 40 minutes of the film or something? Yeah, that's the crazy thing. The, the part where Peter Parker is not Spider-Man is maybe my favourite section of any Spider-Man film. I think it's just so it, because it includes the raindrops keep falling on my head sequence. Yeah, which, which is, is cinematic gold, and it, it that's not even an ironic thing. That it's just so good. Like I would, you just don't see things like that in modern blockbusters. Yeah, it, it, it's something that just has the the common decency to make fun of itself. Yeah. Which is something that we just don't get enough. Like we get like the the witty one liner that's like makes fun of a thing that happened ten years ago, but we don't get like the direct. This is silly, but it's fun. Well, we're loving it being silly. Yeah. But that that's such a great bit of breathing space for the film as well because it's you really get to revel in this human drama, and it's that this is sort of when I go back to the first film as well because I sort of I called the characterizations quite broad in that one. In this one, they feel so they feel so beautifully detailed and so rich, and they develop and shift as the film goes on. But they're still very clear. I like how the film almost calls out Peter in a way in saying that it's not real. You can't just pine after Mary Jane forever. Like yeah. you, at one point, you have to, and it it might be heartbreaking, but you have to choose one way or another. And you know, it looks at the damage that it does to Harry to be in that state of never being able to let go. And then the movie forces him to sort of make a choice and he chooses the the bad one in terms of letting go of this hatred he has. And and it and it also doesn't give you any clean answers either, because something that's really stuck with me is that that scene where Peter tells May the truth. She never officially says, I forgive you for that. She just withdraws her hand and then leaves. And the sequen- the scene just ends. And it's so devastating. But yeah. not in a big, dramatic way, just in a very quiet, real way. Yeah, and I think because the- there's a lot of evidence to suggest that May knows that he's Spider-Man. Yes, which I love. I mean, I often lean into that because I love that aspect of it so much again it just adds that little bit of depth to her character that you'd think she'd be the one who would be most concerned but she's actually like no of course my nephew would that's because she thinks the world of peter <laughs> she's there with a with a box of stuff and just like if only spider-man yeah. was <laughs> here to help if i was yeah. spider-man i'd help a young old lady <laughs> like me spider-man <laughs> She just has a hard stare at him for a while and looks him dead in the eye. They don't speak for five minutes. Um, but yeah, it, it's I love that aspect of it. And it's never confirmed, but it's just it works so well because she thinks the world of Peter. So to her, that would make perfect sense for him to be Spider-Man. Yeah. As soon as it clicks in her mind, as, she, as soon as she recognizes him, she wouldn't raise an issue with it. She'd go, nope, that makes sense. And then you have Doc Ock as well, who's just... Oh, chef's kiss. I'm making, I'm saying it instead of making the noise. Again, this is what, you know, great as he was, Willem Dafoe is not a, isn't a character who undergoes a transformation or a development. As much as, as if anything, he's just the, the sort of true horror of Norman is just that he was always that way. Yeah, the just, took just something brought out, to Yeah, what, who he really happened. was. Whereas Doc Ock is like a tragic fall. He is someone who is a victim of his own hubris, but clearly sympathetic. And that's the, like, he's a real mentor to Peter, not just in the Norman way of, I'm your 
friend's dad. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm something kind of, of like a, a, yeah. I'm something of a father figure yeah. myself. <laughs> Where that's the thing. That's the only real time he has an emotional bond with Peter. But. Doc Ock isn't something of a scientist. He's literally a scientist. Yeah, and but they he, literally bond for about two or three scenes mm. before the incident happens. Yeah, and, and the advice he gives Peter is good advice. It's not, you know, it's it's misplaced because he doesn't know the whole truth of it, but it's still, it is in a way echoing what the film says, where he, he's sort of telling him that you have to make a choice, essentially. You know, it's not necessarily giving a clear-cut way of Peter has to be Spider-Man. It's just reflecting on the fact that if he is Spider-Man, he has to let that other part of his life go. And you could say it's maybe a cheat that he ends up getting both, but I don't think it is because he is fully willing to make that sacrifice. Yeah. But And, and if anything, it, that's the final beautiful twist of it, is that the one thing he hadn't considered was what MJ herself thought and what her own agency was in this. Yeah, and it's it ends up becoming her choice. Yes, that. and that's, that's why the first and last shot of the film is her face. Yeah. And there's a beautiful because, of course, the first shot of the film is Peter looking at MJ's face on a billboard. But, and then the last shot of the film is that great little, little sort of graduate style close up of her. Because, again, it's not definitively saying she's made a bad choice. It is just we have to now live with this choice. Yeah. Um, there's no going back to the altar once you've run away. Oh, I was going to say something else between... Uh, about Doc Ock no oh yes so this is because another line he gives that I love early on is when he's talking about uh, he asks Peter if he's seeing anyone and Peter says well maybe but they don't know and he says well you can't bottle up love inside you or it'll make you sick Yeah. and then over the film we see Peter lose his powers it's so like people say they never explain why Peter loses his powers in these films I think in, or in that film I think they 100% do it's yeah. just right there beneath the surface I mean, says, I think it literally in the doctor's scene, this is like, well, like the, yeah. the doctor basically explains it, doesn't he? He basically says, like, Maybe it's just in your mind. Like, yeah. It's, you, it's, it, there's such a tactile relation of Peter no longer wanting to be Spider-Man because of how much it's ruining his life and him losing his powers. It's his own, it's his own sort of body's way of saying, you don't want to be Spider-Man anymore. You can't be. And as Doc Ock says, it's made all these things he's bottling up are making you sick, which is a weirdly proficient, um, whether this is what they're going for or not, ends up being a weirdly accurate depiction of mental health almost. Yeah. As odd as it sounds, because it's this, it's this like tactile relation between his mental health and his physical health, which, you know, maybe that is reaching a bit, but I think that's, you know, in bringing your own reading of these films to the table, I think that's 100% a valid one. With, you know, in, in maybe it's a sort of quieter part of the drama of it. Because that's the thing. For a film that has a... Raimi's films have a reputation of being like, oh, they're the campy and silly Spider-Man. I think, especially in Spider-Man 2, they are the most sort of deeply humane films, I think, ever to come out with a Marvel banner. And that's in any... Like, with MCU, the, the Fox, anything, I think... Nothing really matches the sort of beautiful humanity of Spider-Man 2 for me. You can see it in every aspect as well. It's not just in the romance part, which feels fully developed, or or Peter's own internal struggles. The fact that he, the conclusion of his conflict with Doc Ock is for Peter to appeal to Doc Ock's humanity and his philosophy and the person he was before the giant tentacles, which still look incredible. I'll add that as oh, well. Yeah. Oh yeah, and Alfred Molina's fantastic. Joel McHale turns up. It's perfect film. It's ever, it's got everything. It's got, it's <laughs> All great. it was missing was a free toaster. Yeah, I think it goes beyond, in the same way The Dark Knight does, it sort of goes beyond 
just being a great superhero film, this is a great film. This yeah. is one of the best films of the 2000s, I would say. What the, I could very easily call it one of the best films of that decade. Yeah, and I, I think because in a lot of ways, the the popularization of the MCU and everything that happened mm. uh, at post-2008 has meant that a superhero film doesn't get the level of... Sometimes it gets more credit than it deserves and also less credit than it deserves. Because yeah. when there's something that's genuinely quite impressive in a superhero film, it's like, eh. Mm. But also a lot of it is the same. Yeah. So yeah. when you when something like Spider-Man 2 came out at the time, it's like, it, it's huge. And mm. it's something that it, like, it wasn't designed to be this popcorn level flick that's setting up 16 other films. Yeah. yeah. It exists as its own story with like things that it is setting up mm. because like you know it's setting itself up for its own trilogy possibly quadrilogy mm. but enough that it is still a complete film yeah when it's over definitely i love roger ebert's review of it from the time as well because he was one of the first to recognize he gave it a perfect score he recognized immediately this is just a great film he i think the opening line of his review is something like this is what superhero movies should be and he named it one of, he put it as like the third or fourth best film of that year, more than, you know, Oscar nominees or these big art house films of that year, which in, in at the time almost seems silly because it's like, that's the film where a man with giant robot tentacles goes insane. <laughs> but, but he says in his review, it's just, a, it's a flat out great film. There's no caveat to that. It's not great for a superhero film. It's not great if you like Spider-Man. It is just an amazing film. Pun intended. <laughs> Which moves us on to... Three I mean, years surely, later. Surely, well, surely the first film was excellent. The second film, even better. Will this trilogy finish on a high note? But, In some regards, yeah, yes. Yeah, that's the thing. I, Spider-Man 3 gets a very bad rap. I don't think it fully earns it. But in some spots, but there are others I think it does. It, it's, it's, just, it's just a mixed bag. I think it's the... So when you were talking earlier about it, it's the Spider-Man 1 being your first cinema experience that you remember. Yes. The earliest cinema experience that I remember, that like I definitively remember, ah, is Spider-Man 3. Right. And I came out of that film and I went, that was a 9 out of 10 film. <laughs> that was amazing. No, I, because, I I was a, because I was a child and I had fun. No, I think I... I think it's a good film. I think I... I remember seeing it and I also enjoyed it a lot as a child. I think if anything, I think I, not to, you know, not to say my taste hasn't changed or anything, but I do distinctly remember preferring Spider-Man 2 for as long as I can remember. I don't know why. I think maybe just because it has a happier ending. I think that was what I gravitated more as a child. We didn't talk about that. The moment when it's revealed that when MJ knows that he's Peter Parker, that still makes me well up in a way because it's just so, it feels so earned. Like it's just... Yeah, but anyway, I preferred that as a child to the very somber ending of Spider-Man 3, which is weird when you think it's, uh, like, the end of this trilogy. I know there were plans for a fourth one that didn't come together, but still, even then, it's it's uh, sort of shocking in contrast because the other two have ended with him triumphantly swinging away. This one, his relationship is potentially in ruins. His own, his best friend is dead. He, he can't, like, they never definitively say whether he's shaken these sort of monstrous tendencies that the Venom suit gave him. Yeah. It's, yeah, it's just really, we're jumping right to the end, but it's the, just the, the fact that it ends with Peter and MJ not even happily reuniting, almost just comforting each other in their grief. Yeah. That's it. It's not them saying they love each other again. They're literally just, we have no one else but each other. we got to stick together. And the music isn't triumphant. It's so... 
God, yeah, that stuck with me a lot as a child. You know, one thing that really sort of <laughs> makes me wonder if I'm a slightly bad person, because something that I walked away from the last time I watched this was, a, a takeaway I had, was that Peter Parker's happiness inadvertently annoys me. <laughs> I find him most insufferable when he's happiest, which is the, through the first stretch of this film, and I find him most compelling when he's at his most miserable, which is in Spider-Man 2. Yes, this is the the, um, the the thing that I've seen a lot recently, is that um, it's basically, I saw a lot of tweets about it, which is like, uh, Spider-Man fans, when he is literally like at rock bottom, and they're like, yeah. this is what we like, baby! <laughs> yeah, yeah. Woo! When he's happy in a stable relationship, no. Get that out of here. Yeah. We're here to see him suffer. Yeah. If he's happy, that means I have to be happy. Mm. But I think even in terms of performance, though, I think there's there's just a, you know, there's just a... And I know this is... I hit the table. I know this is what they're going for because he is heading in that darker direction, but there's an unpleasant smugness to Tobey Maguire's performance in this that, that is so contrasting to the empathy I felt for him in Spider-Man 2. Which again, I, I get that's point. So you could say that's the film working very well in that regard. But it is a rough ride to have to do that for most of its runtime with this guy who you fundamentally don't like anymore. Because it's yeah. just Peter Parker being low-key the worst. <laughs> but, you know, he was... <laughs> now dig on this. Because he was actually like bad enough of a person to um, Eddie Brock that Eddie Brock without knowing that yeah. he was Spider-Man yeah. went to church yeah. and asked God to kill him like, like, he was like God please kill Peter Parker it's he, like, he's a bit of an ass I, I was thinking about this today because I'm, I'm trying to think of other depictions of Eddie Brock and I think my favourite outside of you know our Lord and Saviour Tom Hardy obviously I, I think my favourite is in the Spectacular Spider-Man cartoon where he and Peter start off as friends and then through Peter like having to devote time to being Spider-Man ends up alienating Eddie to such point. Like a, a good example is sort of a, not to recap like the first story arc of Spectacular Spider-Man, but I'm going to try and do it. They work in uh, Dr. Connor's labs as lab assistants. And then that storyline sort of culminates with Dr. Connor's becoming the lizard. And they all have to help. Like Eddie as the other lab assistant is like, Peter, come on, we got to help this. And like observe what's happening or something. And Peter's like, no, I can't. I need to go, obviously to be Spider-Man. But he's like... Um, you know, but Eddie doesn't know that. And so Peter runs off. He also grabs pictures of himself as Spider-Man fighting the lizard. And so from Eddie's point of view, that then becomes, you ran off to take pictures to sell behind my back. Yeah. Like, and that starts a, a rift between them that escalates. And, and that's, I think, a really good way of doing it. In this one, they are both just... And that's the problem with... Eddie being insufferable, but Peter's also insufferable. They're both just assholes, and I hate them both, and they're both just weaselly little nerds, and I want someone to stuff them in a locker. Where's Flash Thompson when you need him? Yeah. Well, you think you're funny, do you, freak? Yeah. <laughs> it, it's, yeah, it's just so, like... It doesn't work as a rivalry that has any menace to it, but it also doesn't work as any kind of compelling dynamic. Yeah. Um, I think it's, it's the fact that, you know, Eddie Brock isn't beat out by um, Peter being better in any way, like, because they, they both do wrong where... Yeah. I mean, Peter's just kind of like an ass to Eddie, but, like, yeah. Spider-Man breaks his camera, mm. Eddie photoshops... Yeah, that's the thing. thing. Like, Eddie, the... the <laughs> he photoshops the photos taken the, by Peter. Yeah. Why would you think you could get away with that? That would get you fired from any journalistic 
And then uh, J.K. Simmons is like, hey, have you both want a job? What, anyone care what I want? Yeah. <laughs> I do, sir. So. You know. Oh, that's Sorry. great. That's great. J.K. Simmons on fire as usual. He That, that scene where he's, he's taking the medication and they're bossing him constantly. Not that one. <laughs> it's amazing. Um, or when he's talking to the child with uh, the camera and trying to get her to be a photographer in the final scene. I don't, I think it's a bit out of place in the final scene, given the dramatic, like Harry's dead. Anyway, back to more wacky antics with Jonah. He's dying. Yes, oh yes, yeah. of course. And he asks the kid for the camera yes, so he can take the pictures. Yes. And then she asks for like 20 bucks. And yeah. Like, no, she asks for a hundred bucks. Oh. Think. And then she says films extra because he opens it and there's nothing <laughs> in it. That kid is a born hustler. Yeah, I, I'm made. convinced that she got a job at the I Beagle. Think, that's the thing. I think Jonah turned around in the next scene and was like, I hate you, but I respect you. You're hired. There is a whole separate movie with them that I want to see. Yes. They could still make it. Like Whiplash, but yes. for the Daily Bugle. Yes. I maintain, like, the best, I think, I think one of the best things you could do, because it's the best comic book casting ever in any film, I want a two-hour film where it's just J. Jonah Jameson. He's just sitting at his desk. There's no, like, you can have Spider-Man and battling things maybe swing past in the background, but it's just, it's two hours. It's just him sat at his desk. We're just following him through the whole day. That's it. Um, anyway, back to a film that is worse than that, than the golden idea I just had. Because um, we were talking about Eddie. I think that's, again, a key problem. Topher Grace just doesn't have the menace required. And he's been... I want to, like that's the thing. I was he's been menacing in other films, but even then, not to the same degree. Like when he plays David Duke in Black Klansman, he's sort of a pathetic man. Like it's it's menacing because of his monstrous his, yeah, ideas his and, and the one, yeah, and, and the position he's put. Him as a uh, person, and the, is... the bigoted vileness that he's spewing. But he like the movie sort of makes a point that really he's just a small man behind a desk. And I think that in itself says a lot about why he shouldn't have been cast yes. as Venom. It's yeah. the fact that like he's there as a mockery of David Duke. Yes. Yeah. Not as a indictment of him being scary. No, it's like, no. Look at this tiny little man. Mm. He's pathetic. Yeah. It's, Imagine it's, if he had a symbiote suit and yeah. <laughs> was big and scary. <laughs> But also, like, as far as I know, Eddie isn't a white supremacist. So good marks for Eddie there. Well done. I, that that, that we, wasn't subtext. I'm, just, I'm trying to think, like, do we get that confirmed? There's not a lot of black people <laughs> in these films. Look, I have to assume... Look, call me an optimist. I have to assume that, at the very least, he isn't a Nazi. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> it's never confirmed he isn't, but my, my go-to stature with people is to assume they're not, usually. See... But then that's you get caught out. Yes, that's right. If you assume everyone's a Nazi, yeah. then you never get disappointed. Mm. Expect disappointment and you yeah. never get disappointed. Well, speaking of disappointment, um, actually, no, still speaking of Venom, because I just want to say, I, I don't think, looking at the action, I don't think Sam Raimi is that interested in Venom either. As a, because when you look at the fight scenes he's done with Goblin and Doc Ock, there's a sense of escalation, there's a sense of variety, they use their powers in different ways, there's different tactics of Spider-Man, they're, they're kinetic and propulsive. His fight scenes with Venom feel very like static in comparison. They, and I think you can tell that he doesn't really seem to know what to do with him, because for most of that final action scene, he doesn't really interact with him at all. They grapple a couple of times, he hits him with a pole, but there's no... You don't get a Venom Spider-Man face-off in the same way that you do with Doc Ock and Goblin. I it's think, like they're, they're constantly being separated. Yeah, I think it speaks a lot to the, the studio interference on yes. that level. Because mm. um, from what I remember reading about 
film at the time and like after it mm. is that Venom was not supposed to be in that movie originally no. like the suit was there and it's supposed to imply yes. Venom was coming mm. but Venom was pushed into it as this almost tertiary villain mm. that like because imagine what it would have been like if we'd had um, Sandman was originally the, the villain for the whole film yeah. which I think you can tell because A what I just said like there are multiple scenes where you just have a face-to-face brawl with Sandman and Spidey and it looks much better that it feels much more creative and imaginative one, one of my genuine favourite scenes in all of the Spider-Man films that mm. we've had is the um, the armoured truck fight with yes, Sandman yes great yeah but, and just unlike because on a visual level mm. it's one of my favourite like yeah looking things because the colours are so pretty yeah like, it's, and so it's so blue and Thomas Hayden Church just is Sandman ripped straight out yeah. of comics the it t-shirt and the look and everything is great yeah and and the powers are used in interesting ways like in punching straight through him and then sweeping his legs out and and the giant sort of swarm of sand he becomes to take out the cops it's just yeah it all works again that's the sort of that feels in place with the other two movies and then as I said I just don't think Raimi was very interested in Venom or certainly not at that moment no I don't think any of us were and none of us wanted him no we were like please go away yeah please come back another day but let's talk about everyone's favourite villain New Goblin. Oh, yeah, New Goblin. <laughs> Do you know what the problem with New Goblin is in this film? Is that it is a two-act structure that's stretched over three acts. Yes. Because you only have two stages to it. You have Harry hating Peter and wanting to kill him and then forgiving him. You have two stages to it, and they were like, we have to stretch this out so it fits into three acts. Amnesia. The easiest way to do that is for him to go from the hating stage to forgetting and then hating and forgiving again. Yeah. It's like the, the you could have cut out that first fight scene and amnesia subplot entirely and just have their first fight be the one where Harry gets fucked up and then he, they're back to forgiving and working on the same side. Yeah. And, and that's the thing is that um, his arc isn't bad. Like, no, no. It's his just, involvement yeah. is fine except mm. for the middle. Yes. Like, we just don't... The amnesia just makes you go... Ah. And except for that goddamn butler. Hey, <laughs> why are you still here? But you're too old. You look 107. Why are you still working as a butler? Oh, I cleaned his wound. Yeah. Why did you oh. not say this? They're from his own like, glider. There was a time to say this. And it was when it was when Harry was drinking his life away, brooding about how much he hates Spider-Man. It was when he was in the shed. Not in the shed. In the warehouse. Wherever it is. That crawl space behind yeah, the mirror. Behind the mirror. Working going, on, yeah, I'm going to kill Spider-Man. Master Harry, do you want to... Oh, I see you're busy. I'll come back later. Do you want a tea with your goblin bombs? Yeah. <laughs> do you know what? There was apparently... I don't know... So I was listening to um, The Weekly Planet, so going over these films again but apparently there was a proposed idea where the butler would be like a figment of Harry's imagination where because it would end up being this sort of reminder that everyone he's loved has left him in his life because of this bitterness and hate and that the butler's gone and and he's just but it I don't know it just it just I I only bring this up because it brings up funny scenarios for me where Harry is like hey butler we got people over get some food ready and then there's no food he's like butler you missed the food I don't even know his name what is it I don't know yeah it's just like a bad bad butler in terms of cinematic butlers there are butlers who murder people who I think are more useful than that guy yeah he indirectly killed Harry by not telling him the truth sooner it's true also, it ends with a funeral again, this one, which just feels repetitive at this point. Yeah. Two doesn't, which is why it's the best one. But, like, I don't know. Maybe there's a sense of symmetry to it, but it doesn't really feel earned. Overall, it's not an amazing film. No. 
but it is a good film. It's yeah, that's the thing. I feel like we've harped on it a lot. There's a lot of great. I mean, we did discuss. We like Sandman a lot, and uh, and you know, I I think Kirsten Dunst is still compelling. I think the problem is that MJ MJ's role becomes a bit repetitive here. Originally, she wasn't supposed to be the sort of damsel in distress. Here's a okay. Here's a. I know this is a different sort of ulterior direction the film is going, and it's much better. The um, originally Bryce Dallas Howard's Gwen Stacy was going to be the one who was kidnapped, which makes sense because she was Eddie's girlfriend, yeah. the one he thinks Peter has stolen. So you know, makes sense. Yeah. Makes sense, and she um, does and, get saved at yes. the, in the beginning. And MJ was going to go to Harry and convince him to help Peter, which works because they have more of a connection other than just random butler. And, and also, like, Kirsten Dunst was apparently very frustrated with that direction that she just had to scream again and sort of stand there. And Sam Raimi had to apologise to her and be like, I'm sorry, I know I said it. You wouldn't have to do this this time, but you do. Because, again, he didn't want to do it. It's he, not him. He, That's no. the thing. Yeah, he, he did give an interview later where they asked him if you went back and did it again, would do you have any regrets from it? And, and he said, like, I think the best answer he could, which is simply... I wouldn't have made that movie. Like the movie, like not to say that he thinks it's bad or anything, but the, if he had, had been given the freedom to do what he had on the other two, he wouldn't have made the version of Spider-Man 3 that we know it as. Yeah. Which would have been better. Yes. We all know it would have been. Yes. And they, he was, there were plans for a fourth one, but they sort of fell apart. And he himself says there were, Sony was sort of gently pushing him out the door in a way because they wanted a fresh start and they got it with 2012's The Amazing Spider-Man. Which we will discuss. You got it. In an additional episode. Yes. Because Um, we've run way over time discussing the 1970s Spider-Man for some reason. (laughs) In retrospect, we spent way too much time talking about that. We foolishly thought we could breeze through these very nostalgic films that we mostly like and have a special place in our hearts. Yeah. We spoke for about 15 minutes about the first Spider-Man, which I thought was a sign of trouble. Mm. Um, And you can't limit that conversation to just 15 minutes. But I dare you to go through our entire conversation and pick out one thing that we should have left out. But, you know, um, I hope that the listeners forgive us. Yes. But truly, if we want forgiveness, we need to get religion. Yeah. Yeah. Scooby-Doo!